Welcome to the February 8th, 2024 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, extended follow-up from the Zuma 5 trial of axicaptogene sililucil, or AxiCell. After three years of follow-up, this CAR T-cell therapy demonstrated durable response in patients with indolent non-Hodgkin lymphoma. However, outcomes were inversely related to high metabolic tumor volume and prior exposure to bendamustine. Up next, the role of platelets in binding and clearing senescent red blood cells. In a series of experiments, investigators demonstrate that RBCs in terminal growth arrest are targets for platelet binding and formation of platelet RBC complexes, which are selectively cleared from the blood. Finally, a new risk stratification strategy for lymphomas of the central nervous system, or CNS. Building on a novel biomarker based on analysis of circulating tumor DNA, authors introduce a molecular prognostic index that has the potential to improve on current assessment techniques and may pave the way toward individualized treatment. Our first research article is three-year follow-up of analysis of axicaptogene sililucil in relapsed refractory indolent non-Hodgkin lymphoma, Zuma 5. And the first author is Satva S. Nilapu of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Indolent non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which include most commonly follicular lymphoma, or FL, and marginal zone lymphoma, or MZL, are largely incurable. Many patients experience multiple disease relapses over time. With successive lines of treatment, remissions are progressively shorter and eventually most patients die due to their disease. However, the outlook is improving with the development of novel treatments, including CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapies. One of these is axicaptogene sililucil, or axicell, which has been approved for adults with relapsed refractory FL. That approval was based on Zuma 5, this single-arm phase two study included patients with relapsed refractory FL and MZL who had received at least two prior lines of therapy. A total of 127 patients with FL and 31 with MZL were enrolled and underwent leukapheresis. These patients went on to receive lymphodepleting chemotherapy followed by AxiCell. In the primary analysis, the overall response rate was 92% in patients with FL, as assessed by investigators in the intent-to-treat population, and the complete response rate was 74%. That was after a median follow-up of 17.5 months. Now, Nilapu and co-authors are reporting outcomes in Zuma 5 after three years of follow-up. To date, this is the longest follow-up of a CAR T-cell therapy in the treatment of indolent lymphoma. In addition to efficacy and safety data, the report includes exploratory assessments of how specific baseline variables correlate with outcomes. Those variables include prior bendamustine exposure and baseline tumor burden. Response rates in the present report are consistent with prior analyses with a median follow-up of 41.7 months in FL and 31.8 months in MZL. The overall response rates were 94% and 77% respectively. More importantly, these new results demonstrate the durability of response. The median duration of response was not reached, and about half the patients remained in ongoing response at the data cutoff. Median progression-free survival, PFS, was 40.2 months for patients with FL 
and as of this analysis, median PFS has not been reached in MZL, and median overall survival had not been reached for either indolent lymphoma subtype. Nilapu and colleagues also report that safety was manageable in these patients with relapsed refractory indolent lymphoma. There were no new safety signals reported. Most newly reported grade 3 or greater adverse events of interest were in patients who were more recently enrolled in the study. These included one patient with a grade 3 neurologic event, two patients with grade 3 to 4 infections, and five patients with grade 3 to 4 cytopenias. Some exploratory analyses in this report evaluate two baseline patient factors that may impact the durability of remissions in patients with FL. First, patients with low tumor burden at baseline had longer duration of response and PFS. Tumor burden was assessed by Total Metabolic Tumor Volume, or TMTV, on PET scan. A TMTV was considered to be low if it was under the median TMTV value observed in the study. So for patients with a low TMTV, the estimated PFS at 36 months was 71.2%. By comparison, the 36-month PFS was only 37.3% in those with high TMTV. The second factor was prior exposure to bendamustine treatment. Patients with FL who had prior exposure to bendamustine had shorter PFS following axicel infusion. The effect was especially apparent in patients who had received bendamustine within six months of leukophoresis, who had median PFS of just 6.4 months. In a commentary, San H. Tonino of Amsterdam University Medical Center in the Netherlands says that in indolent lymphoma, CAR T-cell therapy has encouraging efficacy but concerning issues that need to be addressed. Tonino notes that two additional CAR T-cell therapies have also reported relatively mature follow-up in FL. Both T-cell and Lysocell have efficacy that's comparable to AxiCell in terms of overall response rates and duration of response, and possibly with a more favorable safety profile than AxiCell. However, Tonino adds, the true impact of CAR T-cell therapy and FL can only be truly assessed within the context of randomized trials, and several randomized controlled trials are currently ongoing. Secondly, follow-up is still relatively short, even for AxiCell. Thus, we don't know the true long-term efficacy of this treatment strategy. Finally, patient selection for this novel strategy is still uncertain. Many of these patients will have a favorable outlook with conventional treatment, Tonino says, so the toxicity risks may outweigh the gain for certain as yet undefined patient subsets. So the biggest challenge, Tonino concludes, is figuring out where CAR T-cell therapy fits in the FL treatment algorithm, particularly if these treatments do not result in a cure. Our next research article is Platelets mediate the clearance of senescent red blood cells by forming pro-phagocytic platelet cell complexes. And the first author is Diane C. Ningtias of Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. As background, we know platelets interact with other cell types, including red blood cells, or RBCs, both mechanically and biochemically. One known interaction is the formation of aggregates known as platelet RBC complexes. These complexes are an integral part of the normal bloodstream, consistently engaging up to 2% of mouse RBCs and up to 0.3% of human RBCs. The role of platelet RBC complexes in normal physiology is not well understood. However, it is known that platelets bind to deceased RBCs. High levels of platelet RBCs complexes can be detected in the blood of patients with conditions that affect RBCs, such as sickle cell disease and malaria. 
In these disease states, these interactions are likely increased through changes in the RBC membrane that activate platelets or expression of certain ligands specific to the disease. Those observations led to the present research article, which is focused on platelet RBC complexes in a specific context, that is, in chronologically old or senescent RBCs. As RBCs approach senescence at approximately 60 days in mice and 120 days in humans, they begin to exhibit changes similar to what is seen in sickle cell disease and malaria RBCs. These changes, such as downregulation of CD47, promote removal of RBCs by splenic macrophages and by the reticuloendothelial system in the process of erythrophagocytosis. According to McMorrin and co-authors, these mechanisms ensure that senescent RBCs do not accumulate in the circulation as they possess increased procoagulant activity and raise the risk of thromboembolic complications. So to determine whether old or senescent RBCs are also a target of platelet binding, the investigators used whole blood pulse labeling in mice to quantify and characterize platelet binding. They also investigated the effects of splenectomy and platelet depletion in mice and humans on senescent RBC clearance and erythrophagocytosis. The pulse labeling studies in mice confirmed that senescent RBCs are a preferential target for platelet binding, according to authors. They report a tenfold increase in platelet RBC complexes among the oldest cells, those aged 55 to 60 days, as compared to younger cells. Then, they reintroduced platelet RBC complexes into mice and found the complexes were selectively cleared through the reticuloendothelial system and erythrophagocytes in the spleen. In these experiments, they transfused labeled platelets, RBCs, and platelet RBC complexes into recipient mice. The platelet RBC complexes were cleared three times as fast as platelets and seven times faster than RBCs. Further experiments in mice identified relationships between platelet count, formation of platelet RBC complexes, and clearance of senescent RBCs. When platelet levels were reduced to less than 1% of normal levels, the proportion of platelet-bound senescent RBCs was reduced by more than 90%. The severe depletion of platelets also reduced generation of erythrophagocytes and increased the amount of senescent RBCs that remained in the circulation. In other experiments, using quadrinate liposomes to deplete macrophages, they demonstrated reduced clearance of platelet RBC complexes, highlighting the central role of macrophages in the clearance process. These findings were extended to humans as well. The authors report on analyses of blood samples from nine patients with immune thrombocytopenia, or ITP. These patients exhibited significantly depressed platelet count and elevated mean platelet volume. And as expected based on the mouse studies, ITP patients had significantly lower proportions of platelet RBC complexes compared to matched healthy controls. Furthermore, increased levels of the age-defining markers Annexin-5 and FASR were seen on the surface of RBC cells from ITP patients. Thus, ITP patients have a higher burden of aged RBCs in the circulation. Taken together, these findings show how platelets tell old red cells to clear off. That's the title of a commentary by Jordan Vautreneau and Alastair W. Poole, both with the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. In that commentary, Vautreneau and Poole say that the findings enhance our understanding of canonical erythrophagocytosis by focusing on a functionally specific interaction between platelets and senescent RBCs. 
This highlights an important physiological function of platelet RBC aggregates, they add, saying that this fascinating novel discovery opens up new research questions. For example, does this interaction simply enhance mechanisms of RBC clearance that are already known? Or does it mediate a novel clearance mechanism? And is this all about the red blood cells? Or is this also a mechanism for platelet clearance? It's possible that the senescent RBCs are being engaged by platelets that are also undergoing senescence which would make biological sense, allowing for clearance of two senescent cell types in a single process. The commentary authors conclude, we now have foundational work to help unravel further complexities in the homeostasis of RBCs, and possibly platelets as well, through direct interactions between these cell types. The final article on today's podcast is Entirely Non-Invasive Outcome Prediction in Central Nervous System Lymphomas Using Circulating Tumor DNA. And the first author is Jan-Michel Heger of the University of Cologne in Germany. As background, we know that outcomes are generally poor for patients with aggressive B-cell lymphomas that involve the CNS, whether patients may have a primary CNS lymphoma or secondary CNS involvement occurring concomitantly with systemic lymphoma or later at relapse. Risk stratification is often limited to basic clinical features, such as age and performance status. Young and fit patients may achieve the most favorable outcomes with high-dose methotrexate-based chemoimmunotherapy regimens. Conversely, older patients and those with comorbidities may not be candidates for these regimens. Magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, is often used to assess response to therapy in patients with CNS lymphomas. However, MRI has limited predictive power, in part because it's difficult to distinguish between tumor and post-treatment tissue alterations on the scan. Consequently, new tools are needed to inform treatment decision-making. And one tool of interest in this setting is assessment of circulating tumor DNA, or ctDNA. In studies of systemic diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, ctDNA is a promising indicator of residual disease. In CNS lymphoma studies, efforts have not been as fruitful due to very low levels of ctDNA in plasma and challenges in obtaining primary tissue and cerebrospinal fluid specimens. But a recent study by Mutter et al., published in 2022, was the first to show that ctDNA could be used to distinguish between CNS lymphomas and other primary brain tumors. Of note, poor outcomes were associated with detection of plasma ctDNA whether it be at diagnosis, during treatment, or at completion of therapy, representing residual disease. That brings us to the present study by Hager and co-authors, who present an approach to assessment of minimal residual disease performed using solely plasma ctDNA, in other words, without requiring tumor tissue. They aimed to use ctDNA sequencing to improve risk stratification of patients with CNS lymphoma. They report on the application of ultra-sensitive ctDNA sequencing of plasma and cerebrospinal fluid samples from 67 patients. The study included consecutive patients with CNS lymphoma treated at the University Hospitals of Cologne and Essen, Germany, between January 2018 and September 2022. All patients had a histologically proven diagnosis of primary or secondary CNS lymphoma and were eligible for systemic treatment containing high-dose methotrexate. By tracking tumor-specific mutations in plasma ctDNA over time, they developed a novel biomarker. They call it peripheral residual disease, or PRD, because it doesn't rely on the use of tumor tissue for DNA mutational profiling. 
So how well did the ultra-sensitive ctDNA method perform? Investigators say it allowed for detection of CNS lymphoma-derived mutational profiles, including key genes involved in disease pathogenesis, including MID-88, PIM1, CD79B, and PCLO. Importantly, patients with undetectable plasma ctDNA at baseline had favorable outcomes, with only 2 of 11 experiencing relapse. Plasma samples were also tracked over time, including after one cycle of treatment, or mid-treatment, and at the end of induction therapy, or post-treatment. They found that in patients with persistent PRD at the mid-treatment assessment, there was a trend toward worse two-year failure-free survival at 55.6% versus 73.3% for those with negative PRD. By contrast, PRD at the post-treatment assessment was highly predictive of relapse. The two-year failure-free survival rate here was 0% versus 84.9% for the PRD negatives. Altogether, the investigators say, these results indicate that PRD is a novel biomarker that is associated with CNS lymphoma relapse. Investigators leveraged PRD to develop a tool for outcome prediction in CNS lymphoma, called MOPC, or Molecular Prognostic Index for CNS lymphoma. MOPC incorporates baseline features including age, performance status, deep brain structure involvement, total protein and cerebrospinal fluid, serum LDH, and baseline plasma ctDNA level, as well as post-induction features including radiographic remission status by MRI and log change in PRD from baseline. In this study, MOPC was highly predictive of outcomes, with a two-year failure-free survival in the low-risk group of 95.2% versus 69.1% for the intermediate risk and 9.1% for the high-risk group, with a p-value of less than 0.0001. In a commentary, this prognostic model is described as robust and possibly superior to current assessment methods. The commentary authors are Jane N. Winter of Northwestern University in Chicago, and Andres J. M. Ferreri of the IRCCS San Rafael Scientific Institute in Italy. They say the MOPC contrasts with most prognostic indices, which attempt to predict outcomes right from the outset. Instead, MOPC provides an interim readout that could be more accurate in identifying patients who will fail conventional therapy. Winter and Ferrari say prospective clinical trials with larger numbers of patients are needed, noting that a phase two trial incorporating MOPC is underway. They also say significant challenges need to be addressed, including standardization of methods for assessment, optimal timing of assessments. Altogether, they conclude, reliable and affordable approaches to ctDNA detection are needed before widespread use becomes a reality. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.